Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Criminal Mischief. I'm your host, Carolyn Osorio. You're listening to episode 59, The Jungle Killer. Seattle police detective Mike Szynski spent 37 years as a police officer. He started in patrol, then to narcotics, robbery, and the last 22 years of his career, he worked as a homicide detective. But he didn't get his start in Seattle. Mike grew up as a streetwise kid on Chicago's South Side. If you ask Mike why he became a police officer, what made him a good detective? Well, he might say that it runs in his family, a generational thing or that he was called to public service, that he believes in right and wrong and justice for victims and their families. But what I think Mike's greatest asset is being a good talker. I found that out within minutes of our conversation. Hey. You got it? I gotcha, how are you? You're doing fine, how about yourself? I'm doing good, except for I, I, I hope you will forgive me. I don't want to pronounce your last name incorrectly, so please let's <sighs> get it out up front. Szynski. 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 Yeah. Perfect. Okay, Szynski. yeah. So you've probably been asked that a million times, right? So. Well, not a million because I am from Chicago, and uh, Chicago. the second largest Polish population in the world, and uh, the, the police department that I was on when I started in 1980 was is Calumet City, Illinois. Everybody there, I mean, every name on there. 80% of it was Polish. The chief was Chatelski and Targonski and Tromzinski and on and on and on. Except my father-in-law, who was the assistant chief, and his name was John L. Sullivan. <laughs> you got some Irish going in there, huh? Yeah, and they're all they're related to those great boxer. Yeah, so the so the Mick uh, the Mick married a Polak. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you can tell Mike's got away. He appears easygoing and establishes rapport in a sort of salt-of-the-earth kind of way. So it's no surprise that throughout his long career, he would become an expert at speaking with serial killers. By the end of his career, he would interview 12 serial killers. More importantly, he was able to get them to tell their secrets. No easy task, he would find out. Serial murders that I worked with, most of them, they're true, true sociopaths you know see they have no uh, right or wrong and they have no compassion at all they can act like they do they can act like this really bothers them how do you tell i didn't at first because you know i i had no no training in that because whoever would have training with sociopaths you know in 1990 something detectives you know how often do you ever come across a serial killer you know but our story today isn't about the 12 it's about mike's interaction with his very first when he was just a rookie detective, on September 12th, 1997, when he and his partner got the call, they were next up in the homicide rotation. A body had been found in the jungle. The nickname for the sprawling and densely wooded area near the downtown core of Seattle. 160 acres of undeveloped land, which included green spaces under the elevated sections of Interstate 5 and 90. I got called to the scene in 1997, September of 1997, into an area called the jungle uh, between I-5 and I-90 and right below Providence Hospital. It's a green belt area. So we got called out to that scene and it was in the afternoon and I was just attending, it was funny, I was just attending a seminar about serial killers. And most of us, you know, never dreamed that we would be working. You'd never even think about working a serial murder case. And it just never killed me. We were so busy just doing regular homicides. The area became known as the jungle way back in the 1930s. During the Depression, when the land became a refuge for people experiencing homelessness and poverty, it would also gain an infamous reputation for unfettered criminal activity, a sort of hidden and lawless no man's land that travelers just pass by without a glance on their commute into the city. In 2016, the jungle encampment known as The Caves was shut down by the city after a shooting had left two people dead and three others critically injured. But in 1997, when Mike was called out there for a murder, 
from the moment he arrived on that scene, he had a sense that something was off. A young woman, and she looked a little out of place being in the area that we call the jungle, which is more of a transient type of camp. The victim was identified as 42-year-old Denise Harris. She was wearing buttoned blue jeans, a tan blouse, and white tennis shoes. It appeared that she'd been strangled, but Mike felt that it was strange. Why were her wrists and ankles tied with her shoelaces? The reason it struck him as being odd is that the bindings were loose, and if you tie someone up, it would seem the purpose of that would be to bind them tightly, with their hands behind their back, binding their feet tightly so they can't move. It felt like the act of binding was performative. The interesting part, which we later would call a signature, was her hands were tied, and they were tied with her shoelaces. Her shoes were on her feet, but the laces were removed. I was a young detective at the time, a young homicide detective. I think I was only in detectives in homicide for like three years. I was pretty experienced by then, but, but I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, that's a little strange because why do you tie somebody up to restrict their movement usually? And they usually be, you know, together like this or be behind their back. And I'm like, why would you have a woman tie anybody up to have their hands as far apart, you know, with shoelaces? Well, then I'm thinking, well, maybe it was to carry them, you know, make it easier for their arms not flopping around if they're already dead. I could tell she had been dragged a little bit, but she had some like marks on the front of her legs, in front of her jeans. Well, I put that against the one side, she was, she was gagged and, uh, and she had a, uh, a restraint around her throat also, she was strangled. Was that with the shoelace too, or was that with a scarf? I believe that was with her brassiere. Underwear was around her uh, mouth also, and the brassiere was around her throat. Remember, Mike had just taken a class on dissecting the methods and madness of serial killers. So maybe he was overthinking this a bit, but his gut wouldn't let it go. Most of our crimes are, you know, someone's shot, someone's down, someone got into a fight, someone got robbed, or it's gang related or things like that. They're not really mind, they're not a whole lot mind teasers. So I was thinking, well, this is a little bit unusual. And so you lean on the other detectives, the senior detectives, the senior sergeants. And at the time, the senior sergeant was the senior, was the grand, he was in homicide for like 40 years at the time. So I I just went along my, you know, doing what I'm, what I'm saying. This is kind of strange. I pointed a few things out, you know, why would he do this? Why would he do that? And a lot of it to myself and then to my partner. Mike's the sort of guy who's go along to get along. He'd only been a homicide detective for three years and there was a pecking order. He was very aware that it wasn't a good look to speak out of turn. But when he noticed a beer can that was impaled on a tree limb close to where Denise's body was found, he had to say something. I said, take a picture of that, that might be useful. And there were literally, this is a transient camp and there was a pile of beer cans, maybe 50 or 60 beer cans. I mean, just people would drink and that's over. And there was this one beer that was can that was impaled on this little tiny limb. The crime scene detectives who were a, little, you know, were a lot more senior than I am. And they didn't want to do it. They, I said, just do it. Huh? After Mike and his partner left the crime scene, they needed to perform a death notification. When they arrived at the Josefina apartments, he and his partner would knock on the door. And when Denise's boyfriend answered, they flashed their badges and introduced themselves as homicide detectives. Instantly, the man's shoulders sagged, hopeless. He asked, she's dead, isn't she? The investigators were invited inside, and that's where they learned that Denise had been a preschool teacher in Pasadena, California. She'd hit a rough patch and had struggled with drugs and alcohol. The pair had moved to Seattle for a fresh start, but their relationship had been on again, off again. Mike asked the boyfriend where Denise had been the night she was murdered. He shared the names of a couple of bars on First Avenue where he thought she might have gone, but he didn't know. Obviously, the boyfriend is going to be looked at as a suspect, but between his rock-solid alibi and demeanor, they knew that there was just no way that he could or would murder Denise, that he was deeply in love with her and was devastated by her death. But Mike and his partner did check out the information that the boyfriend had given them, those bars that he thought she might have gone to. They interviewed the bartenders and some other folks, but nothing of substance surfaced. No leads or tips came from canvassing the area. And in the meantime, Mike kept thinking about the shoelaces and the way that they'd been loosely tied around her wrists and her ankles. What was the purpose of that? Why didn't she have any defensive wounds? 
There weren't any ligature marks around her wrists and ankles where the shoelaces had been tied. It just didn't make sense. Why would the killer take the time to loosely bind her hands and feet with her shoelaces after she was already dead? Roughly four months after Denise was murdered, the body of another woman would be discovered a half a mile away from where Denise's body was found in the jungle. The woman's name was Olivia Smith. She was 27 years old, and she was found curled up at the bottom of an outdoor stairwell of a business. Her throat had been slashed. She'd also been stabbed in the chest and buttocks. On the surface, the murders didn't appear similar. Olivia had been killed with a knife, while Denise had been strangled. But there was one very small detail. That caught Mike's attention. One of Olivia's shoes had been found lying next to her, and the laces on those shoes had been partially pulled out. Sadly, just as in Denise's investigation, no suspects or leads panned out. A month after Olivia was found murdered, the skeletal remains of another woman were discovered, again about a half a mile away from the jungle. The remains would later be identified as 34-year-old Antoinette Jones. We had another homicide that we found the body to, Antoinette Jones, and she had been uh, murdered and a transient who was collecting some boxes and all that, pulled those boxes and sees the skeletal remains, you know. Hmm, what's this? And so it was decomposed by like 90%, but it had a gag in its mouth. You know, there's a skeleton with just a gag in its mouth. You know, very horrifying to look. An autopsy would reveal that Antoinette had been murdered roughly three months before her remains were found. Antoinette's hyoid bone was broken, which meant she was most likely strangled. And it was odd because a shoelace was found tied around her neck, although she'd been strangled by a belt. And just like in the Denise Harris murder, her hands and ankles had been bound with a shoelace as well. Olivia's and Antoinette's cases had been assigned to other detectives, but that didn't mean investigators didn't compare notes. The shoelaces were a very specific detail, but the fact that they were all murdered within a half mile radius was something they looked at. And Mike still couldn't let go of the idea that the shoelaces just didn't make sense. He wondered if this was some kind of signature of a serial killer in Seattle, but he didn't tell that to too many people. I mean, that was just a theory and here he was, just three years on the job. He didn't want to appear like he was getting too big for his britches, that he'd taken one class on serial killers and now thought he was the expert. So he kept his head down and just continued to work Denise's case unfortunately, without much progress. So, a couple of months after Antoinette's remains had been found in April of 1998, Mike got a call, a collect call, from an inmate named Dwayne Lee Harris, who said he wanted to speak with him, that he had some information about Denise's murder. You know, you have a collect call from the King County Jail, you know, do you wish to accept? You know, yeah, okay. And if somebody wants to rat out somebody else or someone's looking to get out of jail, you know, something like that. Or some of them are my informants who end up getting in jail. Well, this time though, it was a uh, guy leaves a message for me is Dwayne, says his name is Dwayne Lee Harris. Well, he calls me like five or six times. I think I was working another case by then also. But then when I talked to him, he says, hey, I, I know who, uh, who killed that girl up in the jungle and I know things no one else knows. So you get me out of jail and I'll help you catch the guy. Yeah, right, you know. You didn't have a prior relationship with him. No, not at all. And he was in jail for a robbery that happened and I believe it was in Kent, an armed robbery. And I get this a lot though, you know, people calling up and you know, they want to help me, you know, solve some other crime, you know, just, just get them out of jail right now. Yeah, right, yeah. And I don't think that's going to be happening, pal. Mike explains that he's learned the hard way to be skeptical of calls from inmates in a county jail, because more often than not, the person is calling because they are looking for some excitement, that they really don't have any viable information. You don't realize this. It's unbelievably boring in county jail because they don't have a job. It's noisy. It's loud. It stinks. It's very transient. Now, prisons aren't like that. Prisons, this is, you know, they're there for long terms. They have a job. They go to school. They have a regular schedule. They have their own room. They have a television. They have things like that. In county jail, they look forward to eating. That's why they all get fat when they're in the county jail. There's no exercise. There's no more weights and that type of stuff in, in county jails. There's none of that. They're lucky they get 45 minutes. And if they're a bad boy, if they're ultra brisk, and they, wear, they wear white suits, they get out maybe 45 minutes every other day to do some exercise. 
But Dwayne Lee Harris, whose nickname was Chilly Willie, was persistent. He kept calling, and Mike kept ignoring his calls until Chilly upped the ante. He goes, you never found her purse, did you? And that kind of strung, rung some bells to me, because no, I didn't find any, uh, any purse. That detail had not been released to the public. Suddenly, Chili had Mike's attention, and he promised that he had more information to give, that he could lead the detective to the real killer. Mike was more than curious now about this Chili. Maybe he did know something. So he and his partner requisitioned a police van and drove the 25 miles out to the county lockup to check Chili out of jail. Chili said their first stop was the jungle. I meet him for the first time, and he's a big guy. You know, I mean, I'm pretty big myself, you know. I'm six feet, he's like six two. He had a couple little teardrop tattoos on the side of his face. For some gangs, it's a murder for, for every teardrop you have. They weren't taking any chances with Chili Willie. They made sure he had leg shackles on him with one of those big belts with his hands cuffed to his sides. When they got to the jungle, it was slow going, but right away, it became obvious that Chili knew things. Remember that beer can that had been impaled into the tree? The one that Mike was insistent that they take a picture of? Heavy foliage. He brings us to about where she was. Within, you know, 15 yards or something. He says, yeah, her head was pointing this way, her feet were pointed that way. And he goes like this with his face. And she had a sting in her mouth, her mouth was like this. Well, that was the gag that that's what it was. He goes, matter of fact, there was a tree over here because I stood up and I hit my head and I, you know, said, God, you know, he, he swore, you know, there was a beer can impaled on that limb. And so I, so I knew that this guy was out there. Now, I'm not sure if, if he, he was involved, he said he was with a guy and a guy came and showed him. Okay, but he positioned the body exactly how she was and how she was gagged. And none of that was in the newspaper at all. Mike was trying to suss out Chili's endgame. Of course, just because he knew things didn't mean that he was Denise's killer. And the thing about Chili is that he was constantly lying, but he'd also sprinkle in some truth between those lies. He was looking for a way to get out of jail and he was looking, he was trying to play me. I mean, there's no way in heck I was going to allow, allow that. But I, after a while, you let these guys start to play you and uh, what they think they're playing you. And, but I was leery of him because this one said he was, he had a violent past and he was a big, and he was just a big, strong dude. And he was very, very easy to talk with. He would do most of the talking. A relationship was forming between Mike and Chili, a game of cat and mouse, each of them playing a part. When Mike and his partner went to pick up Chili at the jail, they would take field trips out to these alleged crime scenes. And each time the stakes kept ramping up, becoming more and more intense. It was a constant chess game. And it had some, you know, it was emotional for us too. I, at one point, I remember I was at home and I'm checking my voice messages, you know, because the holiday or something. I forgot which holiday it was. And um, then I told my wife, you know, Gene, come here. You listen to my message from uh, the serial killer. And it's and it's, it's silly. And he says on, on the voice messages, he goes, hey, Mikey, Mike, it's uh, me, chill. I guess you're not coming today because it's the holiday. Uh, okay, uh, well, I'll see you. Uh, I'll see you Tuesday, man. Have a nice holiday. And I turned to my wife and I said, "Well, yeah. When was the last time a serial killer told you to have a nice holiday?" But that was that was class classic chili, you know, classic classic chili. Mike was beside himself. He just wondered if this was all just a waste of time. Was Chili just working him to get out of jail? And was he falling for it? He was a good-looking young man, uh, except minus his tattoos, and but he could put on the charm and. He tried to charm us. I got along with him really well. He 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 gave me a nickname that stuck stuck with a couple of guys about me for years. Call he called me Mikey Mike. Mikey Mike, you know, you call me you know, Mikey Mike. Yeah, this is chilly, you know. And uh, this is chill, you know. Mikey Mike, Mikey Mike, Mikey Mike. I took off from the jail every single day for three weeks, almost every day, except for like the weekends or so, or, or on a Sunday. And he'd take us out to places where he said, you know, there are bodies at. We've seen this. We've seen that. So I would just, you know, go along with it, you know, and just, just take them places. And uh, 
and do what we ever had to do with him. You know, we take him to, we take him to eat and uh, yeah, Mikey, Mike, give me this here. Oh, give me a hamburger. And I bring him when I bring him to our office and stuff, we get our paperwork together. We sit down and I get him a magazine or stuff and a cigarette and he would smoke it. And he was just so happy having a hamburger. Every time Mike was just about ready to call it quits with Chili, he'd dangle another detail, pulling him right back into his twisted games. We're just doing our, our field trips, and he says, I'll tell you about this other case that's up here. And uh, this other guy, Mike or Mark Smith, some name he made up, and you know, we're checking the computer, and uh, all the guys are booked in jail and not coming up with any description or, or anything like that, the name that he gave it to us. So I'm starting to think, my partner and I started to think, it's a bunch of BS. It's not accurate what he's saying. Remember, Chili reached out to Mike to talk about information he had on Denise's murder. But then on one of their field trips, he gives them directions to where Antoinette's remains had been discovered five months after Denise's murder. He took us to where that murder was at, where we found a decomposed body. And in the decomposed body, it was right, it was a mile from the jungle that was right next to I-90. In a roundabout way, he told us about that. He goes, I know where another body was at. Yeah, this guy said he killed a girl up there. So we had those two two murders, uh, which would make a serial murders, two or more that would make a uh, serial murder that are uh, done in the same manner. So Chile had taken investigators to where Denise's body had been found in the jungle. He knew about the can that had been impaled into the tree limb, and he'd also brought up the fact that Denise's black purse hadn't been found at the crime scene. That fact had never been released to the media. But again, Chili isn't saying he's the one who murdered Denise and Antoinette. He's acting like he didn't do it, that he wants to genuinely help them find the real killer, this Mike or Mark Smith. He had some inconsistencies, and also also not being able to locate the, the Mike or Mark Smith, whoever he changes changed person's name a couple of times, and he kept alter altering the imaginary person. So I had a feel, you know, I didn't know does he just want to get out of jail? He didn't try to make a move and uh, escape, you know, maybe try to kill us at the same time, you know. So after all these field trips, they still didn't have anything physically tying Chili to the case, but. Because he knew some details that were accurate about the cases, they had to do their due diligence and run it down with Chili, the master manipulator. But they also had to move on. As homicide detectives, you were always in the rotation to take on new murder cases. And after weeks of dinking around with Chili Willie, Mike and his partner were next up on a double murder that involved a young woman who needed to be in witness protection. So Mike and his partner were charged with picking her up and taking her to a safe house when she asked if they would stop off for a bite to eat. And as they were eating, the woman just starts sharing a story about a guy who had tried to murder her. I know this one guy, man, he wanted to kill me. I was over at a motel with him and this other guy. And then all of a sudden, you know, he wanted to have sex. He takes my clothes off. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, uh, he's trying to kill me. I ran out of place buck naked. And she goes, matter of fact, and she pulls her legs off one way to the table. And she goes, this is the first time I wore these shoes since then. That happened a year ago. And uh, but he tried to strangle me and stuff. And uh, yeah, his name was Chilly Willie. Mike was gobsmacked. This random event had finally unmuddied the waters. Suddenly, the path forward became crystal clear. He's still saying it's just Mike, Mike or Mark Smith. No, I definitely got him someone putting him doing a, trying to rape and murder somebody. They had a potential witness, and now they believe that Chili had murdered both Denise and Antoinette. But again, there wasn't anything physically connecting him to those cases. They'd need a confession. And they also still needed to drive him around to check out all of his claims about bodies in the jungle that he knew had been placed there by this Mike or Mark Smith, the real killer. If you'll recall earlier in the show, I mentioned that the jungle encompasses 160 acres of woodland near downtown Seattle, a lot of green space to hide more victims. And so the field trips would begin again. Mike and his partner would drive the 25 minutes outside of Seattle, pick up Chili at the county jail, take him for a hot dog, and from there, it was the Chili Willie show. He would give them directions to a place in the jungle where he said he knew the real serial killer had hid more victims. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. I love the holiday cheer. 
But let's face it, this time of year can get hectic. So much to do. Am I doing enough? Will the holidays be special? All of which can trigger a sort of blah feeling. And then the anxiety comes, which is why I've learned that therapy can be so helpful, especially this time of year. Talking to someone can be a bright spot amid all of the stress. First of all, you get positive reinforcement for what you're doing right, and you also get the tools you need to manage everything going on. In my case, it's pretty much always reinforcing the backbone to maintain those healthy boundaries. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. And don't worry, it's so easy to get started. It's entirely online and designed to fit your schedule. You just fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you up with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists at any time with no additional charges. Find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash mischief, M-I-S-C-H-I-E-F today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash mischief. I'm going to let you in on something. I cannot swallow vitamins anymore. Seriously, I think it's residual trauma from five years of taking prenatal vitamins. Those huge horse pills. So if I can get out of a vitamin, I'm going to do it. Which is why I am absolutely loving everything about Dose. Basically, Dose for Your Liver is a liquid version of an organic herbal dietary supplement with ingredients like turmeric, dandelion, ginger, all of which help support a healthy liver. And if you're wondering, why just focus on the liver? Well, it's pretty important. It aids in filtration, digestion, metabolism, and gets rid of unwanted elements. No judgment. And what's cool about Dose is when you order it, you get this 16-ounce bottle, which is delivered right to your door, and it comes complete with this cute little 2-ounce metal shot glass. You just pour the Dose, knock it back, and bam, you've done something really good for your liver in like two seconds, and it tastes delicious. If you want to give Dose a shot and invest in your health, Dose is offering Criminal Mischief listeners 15% off your first order, plus an additional 15% off if you subscribe for a monthly delivery. That's 30% off your first order. Go to dosedaily.co slash mischief and use code mischief. That's dosedaily.co slash mischief and use code mischief. What Chili Willie didn't know was that Mike and his partner had a very simple plan. Keep Chili talking until they eventually wore him down. That pressure was a two-way street. After several days of searching for this fictional serial killer, they would bring Chili back to the station. We were at the public safety building at the time. We had him in a room. We had him as, you know, we used to go get, we used to go get hot dogs, you know, and uh, from Mike's hot dog stand. And um, give me one of them hot dogs or give me this. You know? And then we'd let him down or give him a magazine or newspaper to read and stuff. And and then I'd go and, you know, interview him a little bit. And uh, he'd volunteer stuff. Then you try to decipher what's BS and what's not. And still not sure, you know, now I'm, you know, now I know he did He's involved a little more. If, if there is another person involved, though, I'm thinking he's involved also. And I come walking back, but he's going to point some other victims out to us. And I come walking back in there, getting him a coffee refill or something. And the other guys are going to get their you know jumpsuits on and boots, and we're getting organizing, getting people to come search this part of the woods, and uh, we're going to do some digging. And he goes, he called him once again. He called me Mikey Mike. And he says, Mikey Mike. He goes, man, I'm tired. I'm just um, tired of killing. He goes, yeah, I killed them bitches. And I killed that one next to it also, uh, the one who uh, cut her throat. Chili was talking about Olivia Smith, the woman who'd been found viciously stabbed in the stairwell a half a mile away from the jungle. Remember, she had a little portion of her shoelace pulled out. Dwayne Lee Harris, a.k.a. Chili Willie, would confess to all three murders, beginning with Denise Harris. That night, on September 12th, Denise had gone to the turf bar in downtown Seattle, looking to escape her troubles. She didn't stay there long. The bartender had cut her off. She left and was seen walking along Seattle's First Avenue as she made her way to another bar. She sat down, not noticing the tall, lean Chili, who sat just a few stools down the line. He watched her, sensing her vulnerability. Eventually, he would strike up a conversation, moving in close so they could talk. 
He had a certain charisma that was infectious and put Denise at ease. How could she know that this seemingly charming man was playing a game of cat and mouse, or more accurately, predator and prey? He'd stalked her, watched her from afar that night, biding his time, waiting for the crowds to thin as the drinks continued to flow. Eventually, he flashed a little bag with a few rocks, a little more fun. That night, Chili would lure Denise to what he called his quote-unquote playground in the jungle, knowing full well when they were isolated and Denise was totally alone from any other human being in the world, he would strike. But first, more mind games. He turned on her. The charmer was replaced by the manipulative and sadistic killer. He accused her of stealing drugs from him. Then, he strangled her, just as he'd planned to do from the very beginning. That day, Chili would also confess to orchestrating a similar ruse of gaining Antoinette's trust with his charming personality and good looks. They had met near Pioneer Square, and Chili, affable, talkative, seemingly good-natured, lured Antoinette to one of his secret spots with the promise of drugs. Away from prying eyes, he then accused Antoinette of stealing his drugs. In the misdirection, he was able to strangle Antoinette to death. He used her own shoelaces to loosely bind her hands and feet and wrapped another shoelace around her neck. A message meant for investigators that there was a serial killer on the loose. He wanted them to know that shoelaces were his signature. A couple months later in January, Chili enacted the same plan on Olivia. He tempted her with the promise of drugs. She followed him to a secluded stairwell then purposely began to pick a fight with Olivia to distract her, just as he'd done with Denise and Antoinette. When Olivia turned her back to leave, he slid a ligature around her neck, intending to strangle her to death as well. He also planned to use Antoinette's own shoelaces to tie around her wrists and ankles. He had to leave his signature. Chili would brag to detectives as he was confessing that, by then, killing had become his hobby, saying, I just get a thrill for killings. But, as he was strangling Olivia, he hadn't anticipated Olivia getting the drop on him, Chilly Willie, Seattle's shoelace serial killer. He hadn't been prepared for Olivia to have a weapon. He was so caught up in having the upper hand being behind her and strangling her, he didn't even see it coming, how she was able to reach into her coat pocket where she had a knife and used it to break free from his grip. In the struggle, she was able to slash open his right hand a slice that began gushing blood. And in the battle, Olivia started losing her grip on the bloody knife. And moments later, that knife slid out of her hand and dropped to the ground in the stairwell. With the quickness of a wounded, feral creature, Chili glommed onto the knife and then plunged it into Olivia's chest and then cut her throat. Serial murders that I've interviewed over the years and it's almost like a trans-like state. And once again, I said, it has nothing to do with the sex. They're on top of the girl, they're raping the girl. Sometimes they're not even penetrating her. What they're getting off on doing, it's the controlling, it's the strangling, it's the stabbing, it's the motion, it's either they're humping her, but they're just, they're stabbing, 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 stabbing 40 times, 50 times. Discard the body or, you know, or, or, or leave them stuff and just pose them. Everyone had their own, their own little traits. Once again, I say, but it was never ever about the sex. It was all about the power and about, you know, and about the killing. And that's like what, what Chili would tell me. That, that doesn't do it. Sex, that had to do about killing. And that's exactly what he would say to me. As Olivia lay bleeding out, he stood over her, cradling his bloody hand. He said, bitch, you cut me. In a burst of fury, Chili repeatedly stabbed Olivia in the buttocks. She pulled her own knife out and um, cut his hand really bad. Then he, he cut her throat and then he uh, he didn't tie her up with the shoelaces though. But we didn't know that at the time, no, we don't. until you look at the crime scene photos and you see that her one of her shoes was off and the laces were partially pulled out. Well, Chili later told us, he said it was so cold and he was losing so much blood and he was pulling her laces out that uh, he thought he was gonna pass out. So he had to stop him, he had to leave. And that's when he, he left town and he went to Vancouver, Washington, went in the hospital there and he stitched his hand up and then middle of the night, he scrammed from there because he thought the cops were gonna come. 
After so much time spent driving Chili around, buying him food and cigarettes, and listening to him talk, he had finally confessed to all three murders. But even after the confession, it wasn't over. They still had to drive him around Seattle in that van, tromp him through the woods, shackled. But his demeanor had shifted from being furtive and telling lies, sprinkled with some truce, to being an open book. Dealing with Chili, when we were driving around, and we were still driving around in the van, he was showing us places that he, he said he killed other people, which which was BS, he didn't. He just wanted to keep going out and playing games. And then he would start talking about the crimes, and he was there. I mean, once again, he's complete. Uh, he was a complete, most of these guys I dealt with, the serial murders were, were sociopaths. Complete, so I mean, they have no conscience at all. I mean, they, they can pretend that they're just bothering them or they get cry, but it's all, they have none. And he'd start talking about strangling them um, or doing this to them, whatever he's doing. And his voice would get deeper like this. And she'd say, don't do this, man. I have a baby. He said, then I don't want to hear about your baby. You'll go tell it to Jesus down the road and stuff. And I started strangling that bitch and her eyes were popping out and stuff. And he, he was there. I mean, if we were driving in the van like Chloe would be driving. And I'd be in the backseat with, with the suspect or vice versa or with, with Chili. And even for a certain homicide text, it was chilling listening to that, you know, and and because he is this guy, he is actually back there. He's back doing the homicide. And I look down at his hands and he's manipulating his hands as if he's got her around the throat. And his voice is real deep. And one of the witnesses, the one witness who survived, who got away from him, told me all of a sudden he started talking in his real deep voice. Not long after Chile had been charged with all three murders, he would recant his confession. During his trial, he was unruly and disrespectful. He would scream obscenities at the judge, jury, and the prosecution. He would throw stuff and shove chairs in the courtroom. However, Chile's childish attempts at getting attention would fall flat. The judge would order him to be restrained, strapped into a chair with wheels for the duration of his trial. This time, Chili wasn't driving the bus. This time, he would have to sit there and listen as the prosecutor laid the groundwork for Chili's murderous deeds, how he was a predator who used his charm and good looks to manipulate and ultimately prey upon vulnerable women, how he seduced them into secluded areas, and once they were alone with him in what he called his playground, one of his private spots where no one could hear their cries for help, he would brutally murder them. After three days of deliberation, the jury delivered their verdict. Guilty on three counts of first-degree murder in the deaths of Denise Harris, Antoinette Jones, and Olivia Smith. Chile's response to being found guilty was to laugh. When 35-year-old Dwayne Lee Harris was being sentenced for three counts of first-degree murder, he nibbled candy as the judge imposed a 94-year sentence and said, quote, I have never run into anyone who has shown the kind of lack of reverence for human life. Chile would respond to the sentence, saying, There's more of us, adding that his imprisonment would not keep others safe, that justice could never truly be served to his victims, as he would still be alive and have certain privileges. I'm still walking the yard, and I still got radios, TVs. I'm still going to kick it. So let's go on with my sentence. After the trial, the King County Senior Deputy Prosecutor Jeff Baird said, quote, I'm enormously relieved. Mr. Harris is a cunning, manipulative, intelligent, and cruel man who found an effective way to kill women and get away with it. Baird also said that the motivation for Harris's confession was for the sake of his own ego, that he wanted Seattle to recognize there was a serial killer. And in an interview after his sentencing, Dwayne Harris alluded to committing 32 other murders. As for Detective Mike Szynski, Dwayne Lee Harris was the very first serial killer that he had ever investigated and interviewed, but he wasn't the last. He would go on to interview 11 more serial killers, and he would say the thing they have in common is that they remember every detail of their horrific crimes. And whenever they would say things like, well, they know you're asking about a case that happened 30 years ago. Oh, I'm more experienced. I'm saying, exactly. 
So tell me about it. And they would tell me the color of the, the painting in the walls or the wallpaper, the color of the curtains, what the victim was wearing, uh, what knife, what drawer they got the knife out of. And this 30 years later, you know. Because um, they're reliving it? They relive it. All, that's all they do. That's all serial murders do. They think about these cases all the time and about doing their next one. Throughout the show, Mike displayed his easygoing conversational style, and it served him well in talking to these killers. But the whole idea of compartmentalizing one's feelings when you're doing this type of work, it is possible, but Mike says it takes a toll. Well, d- doing all these, I think the longest one I ever had was like 11 hours. I worked, worked a, a homicide case where the guy strangled this girl and then threw down a sewer and she was 15 years old. And it took me like eight hours to go to have him take me to the site where he dumped the body down the sewer. And we're just talking, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we'll, we'll get together when this is all over. me. I'll come on visit you in Mexico or where where was then said he got real quiet you know and he goes it's over there and i opened up a sewer cover and there's this 15 year old girl down there who's been dead and she's bloated i brought him back to the station because i still haven't had a confession from me yet now i gotta get a confession i'm on the telephone talking to the sergeant and then i can hear in the just this very light knocking and i go to open door he said i gotta go to the bathroom and i was so emotionally spent because i had to be his i was his buddy and here I just, you know, just seen this 15-year-old girl's bloated body who he strangled and threw down a sewer. And I'm having food, I'm talking, joking. And now I got to get a statement from myself. I've got a, his confession yet. I had him bring me out to the scene first because um, I just kept working him. And so I finally got him, got him. And uh, I was, after it was all over, and I got the statement from Brown Jail. And now, and this was like on a Sunday, and now the precinct is full. I mean, the, the, my office is full of detectives and, you know, and brass, you know, tenants and captains run them. And my sergeant said, you know, how are you doing? And I, I felt like I was breaking down. I said, I'm, I'm all right, because I've been up all all day and all the evening with this guy. And it was very emotional and stuff. And I said, I just got to go. I got to take a break here. And I come back to my desk and there's like a full pack of beer there. And uh, I remember I took, took a bottle of beer and drinking and stuff. And I had to get back and write up my case and get on with it, you know. And the same thing was working with Chili. We had to, there were times where uh, you put things in the back burner and it, it's nice being around, you know, being able to go home to your family and uh, you have kids because you still have a life going, even though it's, it's a little surreal because, you're working with these true demons. And it, it, well, like I say, it was the first serial murder I ever, I ever done. And I never thought I would never, they never thought about, you know, working a serial murder case. And then I end up going on the cold case and I end up investigating like 11 of them. So. After my interview with Mike, he introduced me to the actor Conrad Coates, who he met on the set of the true crime drama show, Real Detectives. Conrad is the actor who played Chili Willie. He's also known for his roles as Morgan in The Dresden Files and Degrassi, The Next Generation, as Jimmy Brooks's father. So Mike encouraged me to speak with Conrad because of how playing Chili Willie really had an effect on him. Mike had a front row seat in that process because in a way, he'd become the conduit to what it was really like being with someone like Dwayne Lee Harris day in and day out on those ride-alongs. There's been two times that this has happened in my career where I felt like I was possessed. I felt like I was taken over somehow. I was being guided into all of this. Conrad shares that the act of becoming Chilly Willy throughout the filming was just beyond emotionally taxing, and he explains why. He never took his eyes off of him. Like when Mike was on the scene with him, he'd look back and Chilly would always be looking at him. And... Somehow I knew that. This is what I mean about being possessed. So everything that I was doing was, I really didn't know where it was coming from. It was just, I was just doing it. And there was days um, where we'd finish a scene and now we're going to reposition the camera to shoot from a different angle or move on to another scene. And I would have to excuse myself from the set and find a corner somewhere and I would just start crying. I'd have these like giant emotional releases. And then I'd get back up from wherever I was or pull myself out of the corner that I was stuck my face into and just like sobbing. I'm talking about uncontrollable sobbing. And then 
wipe my face and then go right back onto the set and uh and I, and I do it again i could feel this thing kind of go into me it was, it was the strangest thing carolyn i can't can you can you talk a little bit about that emotional i don't want to make assumptions about why you would be emotional i feel like i know it's probably a very layered reaction i'm a big spiritualist i'm not going to say i'm a religious person though i was raised in a catholic household and so forth but and I'm very aware of like when when certain entities can enter into a person. I studied psychotherapy for uh, three years as well. I thought I was going to do that for for a minute. So I'm I'm aware with these archetypal type of energies that can can possess a person. I felt that that's what was sort of happening. Yeah, he kept coming to me in a certain dark way, and the and the. The emotional release was just a way of me protecting myself rather than embodying it and like really living in it. It was like a way of like, you know, getting it off of me kind of thing. As he was dealing with this really toxic role he was playing, he also felt like he needed to protect the actors who were playing Chili's victims. So there would be a scene where we had to shoot where he would tie the women's laces very loosely and then chase them, right? Capture them, sort of tussle with them, and then release them. It was sort of like the game that he would play with the victims. And when we were shooting that scene, you know, we were in a very secluded, wooded area. It was late at night, it was cold. And the woman that I had to do this one particular scene with before, you know, I raped her, um, we do the scene and I'd be on top of her and I'd be, you know, wrestling with her. And as soon as I'd hear it cut, I'd jump off of her, reach down, hold her in a very tender way and go, are you okay? Are you all right? And she'd say, yes, I'm fine. I go, did we do anything that's, you know, triggering you for lack of a better word at this moment? And she says, no, I'm fine. Great. We get all cleaned up and we're going to do it again because we had multiple takes. And after every single take, it was the same reaction on my part. I'd jump up, I'd hold her, I'd embrace her in some way to comfort her, to say, you know, this is not, this is not happening to you. This is between our characters. Are you okay? Yeah. Uh, she was, you know, incredibly grateful for that. But for me, it was... It was just a way to kind of get back to me, you know, for sure. Like right away, it was very, um, it was disturbing. Like I, I didn't lose sleep or anything like that. It was nothing like that, but I was very aware in the moment, something, there was another force at play for sure. Ultimately, Conrad had to deal with the fallout of playing someone like Chili Willie. You didn't have anyone doing the same for you. So you kind of had to go off to the side to release that yeah yes it it uh, it costs it it does cost a little shaving off of you know a slice of my humanity gets taken away playing guys like this for sure and and i, and I heard this thing like we were having <clears throat> was having a conversation once with a couple of actors about um karma and you know your life karma so when you know you when you know as an individual you do something bad in your life towards somebody else, there's going to be a karmic debt there. And so you kind of have to do all these other things to, you know, make it balance out. Well, when you're playing characters like Chili Willie, my karmic account is being like deeply drawn on. And, and I know that. So I've, I've got to do stuff in other areas of my life, you know, to kind of like get that back up there and get my, get my karmic balance. That's, that's sort of my little theory about playing guys like this. Like it does cost, it, it, it takes a toll. Finally, like Conrad, I found the layers between the relationship of Mikey Mike and Chili very compelling. The psychological dance that's going on. I mean, why did Chili even reach out to Mike in the first place? He was in jail for robbery, not murder. He didn't have to say anything. 
Mike was discussing the idea of taking him out and driving him around and the conversations that they would have, you know, about his family or what he was doing. It's like um, honor amongst thieves, I think, is the thought that's come to my mind, where you're, yeah, we're bad guys. Yes, we're criminals. Yes, we do horrible things. But there's a code here. There's a mutual code of respect and i think that yes the mike is the pursuer chili who's trying to you know think that he's outsmarting him and outwitting him there is a chess game that is going on all the time and i don't and i know that mike did not want to be a part of the chess game but he had to be a part of the chess game in order to to win in order to you know capture him I, I would love to do this story uh, from a different perspective one day. I'm trying to find a writer, actually. But nobody wants to touch it because it's too dark. But the whole idea to me is not so much the crime, the sequencing of capturing this criminal. It is what's happening psychological. I find that fascinating. I find that they went into this place where they're they're engaged psychologically uh, and now they've got to like this this went on for months I know that you know he visited him in, in his sleep he was having nightmares about him speaking of Mike now uh, I know that it uh, probably affected his relationship with his family and his wife I know that because I could feel that these things were it cost Mike a lot it, it cost him a lot I think, this case in particular. Before I let you go, I want to plug Mike Szynski's book, which he wrote on the case. It's called Seattle's Jungle Killer. And don't forget to stay with us for our bonus episode, Up Next, where my co-host, Brandon Morgan, and I will discuss the case in more detail. And as always, thanks for listening. From Cloud 10, Criminal Mischief is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.